Good morning, church. That was incredible. I feel like I lost 20 pounds with the calisthenics in the song before. Appreciate that. Don't have to spend as much time at Planet Fitness. I also uh, love when I got the worship order and saw who was going to be leading singing. I'm not going to tell them specifics, but I am to go and tell my friends back in Nashville that Josh Turner helped lead worship today. <laughs> we'll not tell them it wasn't the country music singer, but that's okay. They don't need to know that. I do love, I love how every age, every generation is integrated into the life of this church. Perhaps you've heard people will often say before uh, that, that our young people and our children and our students are the future of the church. That is not true. They are the church. They're part of it, as well as our young professionals and our older adults and all of that. We are, we are already part of the body of Christ. You don't have to wait and so thank you for being a church that fully integrates everybody in the life of the church. I celebrate that. I, I'm still new enough here to be able to leverage this. If you are just visiting us today and you are new here, so am I. <laughs> and I can assure you that this is a place where we were drawn here in so many different ways. But one of the central ways is the relationships that God has formed in the body of Christ here so I want to encourage you, if you are new and you are visiting, please dive in and you will experience, I believe, what we experienced when we came. That God is real in this place. We're not perfect. We don't have it all together, but the relationships are real and they matter here. And for that reason, we want to do a series here where we're leaning into that even more. We're going to do a series on this short story in the Old Testament called the Book of Ruth. And in that place, we're going to look at God's vision for meaningful relationships that don't just bless us, but impact the world for generations to come. We've seen that in recent weeks, right? Saw it last week as we celebrated 50 years of God's work through the AFC. We saw it months ago when we celebrated 100 years of God's work in this particular church, and we are convinced God is not done at all with the work he's doing in this place. And the central place where God does his work is in relationships. So we're leaning into that and I want to begin just by reading the text we're going to look at today. Uh, this is Ruth chapter 1. We're going to look at the whole chapter. I'm just going to read a chunk of it, though, first to get us started, and then we'll uh, flesh it out as we go. This is the word of the Lord, Ruth chapter 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was famine in the land. So a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech. His wife's name was Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilian. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah, and they went to Moab and lived there. Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. And they married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other Ruth. And they lived there for about ten years, and then both Malon and Kilian also died. And Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. When Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, she and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. With her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where she had been living and set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. I want to begin today with two different scenes. One is from a classic work of literature. The other is from a story in real life. But these two scenes will give us a sense of a longing that every human being has. 
First one, maybe you had to read this in school or you will. It's a book called Robinson Crusoe. And if you've seen this before, every time I've looked at any edition of it from new to old, they always seem to depict on the cover some interaction between Robinson Crusoe and this parrot. If you don't remember, you didn't do the reading or you didn't do your homework, you you won't know this, but here's the, here's the, the thing, the, the central piece, the reason they always do that, the central piece that holds him together when he's stranded on an island, no people around, and he's got, he's got to live for years without human interaction, is he becomes dependent on the animals that he has there, and especially this parrot. I want to read from, from that classic work. All the while while I was at work, at work doing what? Surviving, trying to live alone on this island. I diverted myself with talking to my parrot and teaching him to speak. And I quickly taught him to know his own name and at last speak it out pretty loud. Paul, which was the first word I ever heard spoken on the island by any mouth but my own. What was it that enabled him to kind of keep some sense of sanity there? He longed to interact and to engage and to connect, so he did it with the only thing that he had, a parrot there. By the way, there have been many, many adaptations of the Robinson Crusoe story ever since. There have been movies and other depictions of it. A few years ago, uh, they did a movie kind of spin off on this. Maybe some of you saw it. It's called Castaway. Does anybody remember it wasn't a parrot there? He, they, they took a different symbol to do the very same thing. Does anybody remember what uh, Tom Hanks? Wilson! <laughs> right? And so there's the whole scene where he is crying out, he's talking, he's interacting, and then when it goes away, he is so longing for some connection that he has it with a volleyball. Now that's kind of a classic story from 400 years ago in classic literature, but let me take you to, the, to a story in real life, to a woman, woman named Paltith living in the country of Jordan. And in this place, if you know anything about this place, this is, a, this is a region of the world where if you are a woman, your entire identity is defined by the men in your life, whether it is your father or whether it is your husband. Her identity and her security is rooted in that. And what has happened is she had a fiancé, but there was a recent uprising, and so she finds herself now living in the caves in that desolate region in the Middle East. So her fiancé has died, and the only other men, there are no men around really. It's very similar to how uh, we read the beginning of this story in the book of Ruth. Paul Teeth finds herself in a place, there's no men of marrying age where she's having to hide out. Her fiancé has already died, and her father, the only other man that can provide security and identity for her, is a drunk. So when she concocts a crazy, ridiculous, repulsive plan out of desperation to have some sense of security and connection, she waits until he's drunk one night and ends up having a child from her own father. Now you think about this story, Paul T's story in Jordan in real life, and you think about this story that's been retold again and again and again with the uh, classic of Robinson Crusoe, what do they have in common? Well, both stories point out something that's true for every human being. Rooted in every human heart is a longing for relationship and connection. 
Even the most introverted person in the world longs to connect. It's just usually with a fewer uh, number of people going a little bit deeper and some long to connect with more. But every human being is wired for a relationship and we long to connect. We see that in common with the true story and with the classic story. What we also see is the absurd lengths that people will often go to try to make that connection. The reason we're doing this series here on the book of Ruth is we're, we're taking a look at how God depicts human relationships when God comes in and stands at the center of it that not only fulfills that longing in human beings, but it also has an impact on the world around it. We want to explore that as God takes us into relationship development in a whole lot healthier ways than the absurd ways that we tend to go about it. And as we start in the opening of the story, understand the story opens in darkness and emptiness. And there's a lot of hints to the darkness of the story and the emptiness that is felt as we begin here. You don't even get a line in when it says, in the days when the judges ruled. Without even saying it, some of it is very overt, some of it is a hint. This is a hint right off the bat that we're stepping into dark times in Scripture. If you've ever read the book of Judges in the Bible, you know it is one of the darkest places in all of Scripture, one of the darkest times for the people of God, when leaders who are called to lead and help and model the character of Christ and God do not do it in any possible way, and so there's this downward spiral. It gets worse and worse. The book ends horribly and ugly at the end. In the days when the judges ruled, and and we know as the story begins that we're set in darkness and in emptiness. And then it says right off the bat, they have famine in the land. And we meet Naomi, who feels a lot like Palteith in in Jordan, where she finds this emptiness and loneliness and desolation, and it begins in famine and poverty in the land. By the way, have you ever had times in your life when it seems like the world itself is mocking your pain? It's not intended to be that way, but it feels that way. She's living in Bethlehem. Does anybody know what that word means, Bethlehem? It means house of bread. And the story opens where the house of bread has no bread. They're in famine, and so she runs to the place called Moab. By the way, just a little hint. In the Old Testament, when the people of God leave the land of promise, leave the land where God has said, I'm going to be here, it's almost never a good thing. So Abraham and Isaac, when the famine hits them, they run. And both of them end up having their wives in the harem of another man. Jacob leaves and goes away from the land and goes into the land of Egypt in a time of famine and they end up in slavery for over 400 years. Again and again, when people leave the place of God's promise and the place of God's presence, it's never a good thing. By the way, that still seems to be true, does it not? So it starts in darkness, not just with hints, but with famine. And they're going to a place called Moab. And again, we feel the distance and the darkness. Moab is a community and a nation of people that are bitter enemies of Israel and the people of God. And there are a bunch of different stories that could illustrate this. Perhaps the easiest one for us to think about is if you've ever heard the story in the Old Testament of a donkey talking, good VBS story, a donkey talking. It's from a man named Balaam who is hired to go curse Israel. Does anybody remember who hired him? The king of Moab. That's just one picture of the bitterness of the enemies that they 
are in Moab to Israel. So they don't just leave the land of promise. They go to their arch rivals and to their enemies in that place. And then to top it all off, how do we see darkness and emptiness here? She's faced death in every place in every way. This is where she's just like Paul Teeth in the story almost. Even worse. She loses her husband and then both of her sons. And it says in verse 5, she was left. She was left. The word literally says that she was left behind. Have you ever had a season of your life that is so dark and so empty, you feel like you have been abandoned by God? That's what she's feeling like at the beginning of the story. And why I appreciate that it starts here is because it tells me that this book is our book. If you've ever wrestled with whether Scripture is a holy book, it is holy and sacred, not just because it's out there and otherworldly, it's because it's right here in the middle of our world. It steps into our darkness and our struggle and our pain. It's our story. And the God that this Scripture talks about is a God who is not distant from our pain. He depicts it, he says it, He puts it right out there. The story here opens in darkness and in emptiness, and I think that's helpful because sometimes we walk into the door in that same way too, don't we? I remember talking to a bank teller of all things one time. We were just having a conversation, and and we got to the point, somehow we got to talking about church. And, And I realized that she went to a church at a place in the town there that was known for its exuberant worship and really powerful worship experience. And I told her, man, I love the reputation you guys have. I I appreciate what you do and how you represent celebrating God. I said, it must be great to be in that place and to worship in that way. And she said, not always. Not always. She said, sometimes there are days when I come and I gather there and I don't feel like exuberant worship. And it made me think, Look, we always need to be at a place where we're celebrating the resurrection and the hope of Christ, but there also has to be some room in the story, some room in the worship for those times where we feel dark and empty. And isn't it great that the story invites us in there too? There is a place for us. Second thing that I notice here is from the people of God here is that faith is messy sometimes. Faith is really messy sometimes. It doesn't go or sound the way we think it ought to sound. And what I mean by this is it really matters what you do with how Naomi talks about God here. What do you do with it? Now, we didn't talk about a whole lot of it, but let's look at a couple verses here. In verse 13, she says, don't come with me back to this land. She wants to send her daughter-in-law's back. Don't go with me. Why? Because the Lord's hand is against me. Have you ever felt that way before? It feels like God's pushing against me. Or really powerfully, when you go down to verse 20, they end up back in Bethlehem. And they say, isn't that Naomi? Ten years later, isn't that Naomi? Naomi, just like Bethlehem, meaning house of bread and there's no bread, Naomi's name means pleasant, and her life is anything but. So she said, don't call me Naomi. Don't call me pleasant. Call me Mara, which means bitter. Why? Listen to what she says. How does she talk about God? Because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me pleasant? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. How is she talking about God? God's beating me up. God's against me. God's afflicting me. He's bringing calamity on me. He's made me bitter. He brought me back empty. It's all on God. Now, what do you do with the way she talks about God here. Sometimes we want to sanitize it. 
Sometimes we want to rebuke her. Here's what I want to say, a couple things. First of all, we do learn from her and other places in Scripture like Job. Can I just say it this way? When you go through times of deep loss and pain, it's probably not a great time to do theology. When you're going through great loss and great pain, it's not a great time to write a systematic theology about the nature of God. Or to explain and try to understand everything about him. Everybody that does that don't fare very well. What she's saying, I don't think, is God's way. I don't think he's inflicting and doing all of these things. I think his hands are involved in it. But, but it's very different than him against her. God is not against her. Any more than Job's picture. Go read Job chapter 10 sometime. What does Job say? Does it please you to oppress me? To spurn the work of your hands while you smile on the schemes of the wicked. That's real pain and bad theology. That's not a rebuke, though. Here's the thing. What do you do with the way Naomi talks about God? Some people say this is an example of someone who has lost their faith. I want to say exactly the opposite. This is a powerful statement of faith. What do you do when you're all in with someone in a relationship and you do not understand what's going on? You tell them, sometimes loudly. (laughs) What does she do here? She brings God into it. I don't understand it. I don't get it. I'm not going to write a theology book on it. I'm not going to preach a sermon on it. But God, you're doing this and what's going on? By the way, she's saying it, listen to me, as she's going back into the land of God. That's faithfulness, folks. And it's messy sometimes. Somebody's hurting. Somebody's crying out. Somebody's having a whole lot of pain. It's all right to bring that to God and to give him space to do that. That's called faithfulness. So if it's messy for you to trust in this God sometimes and hard and you even have angry words, then here is a place where you can express not only great happy VBS songs, you can also do what half of the book of Psalms does and lament. It's okay to do that. Faith is messy sometimes. But what is powerful to me in this story, right in the middle of the darkness and the mess, you will find rays of hope. It's always true with the people of God. Right in the middle of the darkness and the mess, you will find rays of hope. You see it a couple different ways. First of all, You see it in the nature of the world itself. In verse 6, this is what it says. They heard that the Lord had come to the aid of his people. Your translation may say by giving food, literally by giving bread. They they heard that God was providing for his people and God is bringing bread back to the house of bread. So they go there. Has it changed everything? Has it taken all the darkness away? Has it taken all the emptiness of her loss away? No, but there is a ray of hope in the world around us. And haven't you seen that to be true too? I encourage you, when the times in your life are the darkest and the hardest, look for something around you. There will be some hint that God is telling you, look, I haven't fixed it yet, but I'm still here. I remember one of our dearest friends who lost their child. I remember of all things that God used to give him a ray of hope. It was the family dog. It's the way the dog was acting. Something was going on with the family pet. There was something as if God was saying, I'm going to let my creation tell you that I'm still here with you. Watch for it. God will use his creation to speak a word of hope, to give you a ray of hope in the middle of the darkness. But obviously, you know, when we come to the story of Ruth, if you've ever read this before, the greatest ray of hope before God fixes anything is that hope that comes 
in an unlikely, crazy, absurd relationship between Ruth and her mother-in-law, Naomi. Uh, Let's read those words. Perhaps you've heard them before. Maybe in your wedding you will hear them or have heard them before. By the way, this is not a marriage text. I mean, it works. It's great. You can use it, but it's not a marriage text. It's a mother-in-law and a daughter-in-law. And by the way, one of the two doesn't want the commitment. (laughs) Mother-in-law says, go home. I can't do any good for you. And here is one of the greatest statements of relational commitment in all of the Bible. That's why we use it for marriages. Look in verse 16, Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go, and where you stay, I will stay. By the way, in the Hebrew, it's really blunt. Your people are my people, not will be one day. Your people are my people, and your God is my God. Think about this for a moment, by the way. What a powerful statement it is in light of what Naomi just said. Naomi said, go home. Why? Because God's against me. God's afflicting me. And she says, okay, I'm going. (laughs) I'm in with you, and I'm in with that God. And this is a Moabite woman who has been raised worshiping Chemosh, some other pagan foreign god. She doesn't know Yahweh, but she's willing to give her life to this God that Naomi herself says is afflicting me and is against me. It is one of the greatest statements of relational commitment in all of Scripture. Here's a way to think about it. You can go all the way back to Aristotle, but I prefer to see it through a a Christian lens. Back in the 12th century, a guy named Bernard of Clairvaux, maybe you've heard of him because usually people have heard of this guy before the guy I want to talk about. Bernard of Clairvaux recognized there was a Christian leader that was so impactful in his spiritual friendships and his spiritual relationships, he asked this guy to write a book about it. His name is Allred of Raveau, A-L-R-E-D, Allred of Raveau. And in the 12th century, he wrote a book called Spiritual Friendship. We still have it today. It is a Christian classic that isn't often heard about, but it's a really powerful explanation of what it looks like for followers of Jesus to give themselves in relationship and community. So recognized, other people were saying, please write this down. And one of the things he does, and again, he's borrowing on and adapting Aristotle centuries back to say there are three kinds of friendship we can have in the world. Think about this way. It's really helpful. You can imagine your own life. Three kinds of friendship. The first one, I'll use uh, Aristotle's language, are friendships of utility. What is a friendship of utility? This is you scratch my back and I'll scratch yours. Some relationships and friendships, the only reason we have them is because they give something to us. We get something out of it. It is purely almost just for ourselves. Uh, the second kind of friendship or relationship is the relationship of what um, Allred calls carnal relationships, or uh, Aristotle just calls relationships of pleasure. It's not bad or evil necessarily, it can be, but it's a step up to say, okay, there's a little give and take, but I'm in the relationship just because I kind of enjoy it and it's kind of fun. But both Allred and even pagan Aristotle say there's a deeper kind of friendship that says, I and you are in it for something bigger than both of us. It's a relationship of purpose, a relationship of virtue, Aristotle calls it. And again, Allred just calls it spiritual friendship. What does a spiritual friendship look like? By the way, we're not talking about monks and mystical stuff like that. A spiritual friendship is one that is based on the Holy Spirit being part of it. In other words, it's a friendship that we encounter within this relationship of us, the same relationship that has existed for eternity between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And that's what's going on in the book of Ruth. You watch it here and watch it for the rest of the book. 
They use a term we'll talk about a whole lot more later on to describe Ruth's friendship with Naomi and with her family as hesed, this steadfast love. Most of the time that you hear this word used, it's used of God's love for us, his covenant, faithful, steadfast, long-term love for us. And the pagan woman in the story is the one who is demonstrating it here. Here's a simple way to think about it. I realize it here and I see it in a thousand other places all the way back to the Trinity itself. Here's the thing. The greatest joy. We all have this longing for a relationship. The greatest joy you will ever experience in a relationship is when you are in it for more than just you. You are in that relationship for the sake of the other being the best version of who they are as well. Why are we here in the body of Christ? Because we have it all together? No, we're crazy and we're nuts and somebody will drive you nuts here. But we're in it absurdly out of commitment to each other in the trust that that hesed steadfast love is going to spill out. Greatest joy you can have in your relationship is the joy of a relationship that is given for the sake of the other and not just for me. And I'm telling you, in this world, that's hard. Because most of us do Orpah-like friendships. By the way, don't condemn her. Don't pick on Orpah. Don't judge her. She went home. That's what everybody does. It wasn't an advantage to her anymore. It wasn't pleasurable to her anymore. She was level one or two friendships. She went home. That's all right. But that's not what God has called the people of God to be. We are covenant people who say we're in this together and we're all in. And the greatest joy of your life will come when there are people in your life that are about more than just you. The last thing I want us to see, though, the real power in this story comes to me in the way God chooses to describe the friendship and the commitment of Ruth to Naomi. He uses the description of a return. What does it mean for God to say it is a return? Here's the way to think about it. Um, in the Bible, and when the Bible was written, they didn't have things like bold and underline and italics. And so one of the ways that the ancient writers would make sure to emphasize something is the practice of repetition. I like to say the Holy Spirit likes to repeat himself. So watch for that in Scripture. Repeated words are like bold and italicized and underlined. In this section of the story, the word that dominates the entire section is the word return. The first time we see it is in verse 6 when it says, they returned back to Bethlehem to the land and the place of God. By the way, good move. Redemption always starts when we go back to the place and the presence and the promise of God. Redemption always begins there. But here's the startling part to me. In verse 7 and again in verse 10, it describes Ruth's journey to Israel as a return. You might say, what's the big deal about that? Well, think about this. The Bible says that Ruth, Ruth returns to a land where she's never been before. How can she return to somewhere she's never been? I wonder if it's not maybe a couple of things going on. First of all, maybe it's a symbolic return all the way back. When God created the world, he made it very clear what will bring you joy and purpose and meaning in life, and it's called relationship. Again, it doesn't have to be 10,000 people. It may be a few. It doesn't have to be marriage, but it has to be some deep relationship. How do we know that? Because when God created the world, he said, I'm going to create a community of relationships, and I'm going to be right in the middle of it. 
And he created the world, and he said it was good, it was good, it was good, it was good, it was good. The first time in all of the Bible God said something wasn't good. Do you know where it is? Before the fall, before we screwed it up, first time in all of biblical history God looked at something and said it was not good. You know what it is. What did he say? It is not good what? For man to be alone. It's not good for people to be isolated and disconnected from community. It is not good. So when Ruth goes back to the land of the people of God and the center of the presence of God and the community of God, she is returning to the place she was created to be even though she'd never been there before. Isn't that powerful? Perhaps that's what's going on, but I know something that's going on here. Is there's a return that goes centuries back in her simple act of covenant faithfulness. Here's a way to think about it. I told you the story at the beginning of a woman in what we call Jordan. And her name, Paltith. We don't know that that's her name, but we know in Jewish tradition and history, that's what they call her. We don't know her name, but we do know her story. Let me read these two verses to you. Genesis 19, verse 36. So both of Lot's daughters, Abraham, his nephew Lot, they had destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah after the Um, judgment of God, both of Lot's daughters became pregnant by their father, and the older daughter, Jewish tradition says Paltith, we don't know her name, but the older daughter had a son, and she named him, anybody know? Moab. And he's the father of the Moabites today. Centuries before this story, it wasn't just one lady, but two of them, that in their desperation concocted a plan to have children, to get out of their loneliness and isolation, and the product of that was not just a son, but a nation called the Moabites. And from that moment on, hear me, even though they were blood relatives, they were at war. Now do you see what's going on in the story? Just one little thing that's going on in the story. The simple act of friendship and covenant hesed faithfulness of one member of those blood enemies begins to heal a century, centuries-long division. Isn't that powerful? God's just getting started in it. She's not just returning back to the creation intent of God. She's returning back to what family is supposed to look like. And her simple act of commitment to Naomi is beginning to heal all the way back the pain that had come before. It's almost like a pebble thrown into a pond. And the ripple effect goes way, way back. It begins to heal centuries, centuries of pain. And as we'll see in the rest of the story, the ripple effect of this simple act of friendship will go forward even into our own lives and hearts and experience. Did you know the simple commitment of a real spiritual friendship that goes beyond you and what's advantageous to you can have a ripple effect that will go to people and generations and lives you may never ever see until Jesus comes back. I experienced that here in this church in a way that I'd even imagine and it started over 20 years ago under this tree this is out in front of Harding School of Theology. There's Harding and Searcy that's undergraduate. This is where I went for my master's work before I did my doctorate at Lipscomb. We went to Harding in Memphis. And this is a tree out in the lawn in front of the main building. And I remember I just started the work and we were taking a class on restoration church history. It was the church history of this particular movement. 
And I remember learning there for the first time, the movement, by the way, that, that started with a unity movement, but it ended up splintering into churches of Christ and Christian churches and disciples of Christ. And I remember reading the history book, and it was the first time in my life I realized that we caused it. I love my heritage, but I'm just being honest about it. Here's what I, I read. There's a particular leader, I can't even remember his name. There's a particular leader, listen to me. For the entire first generation of the movement, people worshiped in different places and in different ways, but they were unified. And so their worship on a Sunday morning may look very different, but they were together in a movement. And one of our guys said, nope, we're kicking them out, basically. Wrote us out, I'm just wrote them out, because they worship differently, even though the previous generation didn't before. And I remember reading that, and it just killed me because, let's be honest with you, I had done it too. I had done it too. I, look, I'm not talking about like doing the same thing as everybody else. I can disagree with people, but I took that disagreement to a level of fellowship and brotherhood and sisterhood with other people. I had done it in my life, and I read those words. I'm like, oh my gosh, we did that. And I went out under that tree, and I made a promise to God. I'm just one guy, I said. God, for the rest of my life, I want to offer whatever I do to be a source of unity in the body of Christ. Doesn't mean I have to agree, doesn't mean I have to join anybody, but I'm going to be a, a person of unity. And I walked back into the classroom and I talked to my friend Russ. Russ was a minister in the Christian church. And even though I hadn't done it to him, I felt like I needed to do it. I read those words and I came at it for Russ and I said, I'm sorry. I'm sorry the way my heritage has treated some of you. I'm sorry the way I have done it. I know I didn't do that to you, but I'm sorry. And I reached my hand out and I asked two things. I said, first of all, will you forgive me? And secondly, I said, I know we're just two people and I'm a nobody, but can we make a commitment together that wherever we serve for the rest of our lives, we will be people of unity? And he reached out his hand and he forgave me and he said yes. Now listen to me. A couple weeks ago on Easter little church of 50 people, the Anglican Church of the Incarnation, met in our building. And that was just the latest fulfillment of that promise I made under the tree. And I thank you for it, and I thank our elders for it, that I could go and ask. They needed a place to meet on Easter, and they met here in our chapel. And I went to that service. Now, to understand the power of this, you must understand that an Anglican church doesn't just pray off the top of their head. They pray out of a prayer book that 90% of it is scripture. They're praying the Psalms, they're doing all this stuff. But there's a place in every service they have on a Sunday morning called the prayers of the people. I think it's powerful because they discipline themselves to make sure to pray for things that we wouldn't pray for if we just prayed off the top of our head, including the poor and the government and the church and all sorts of things. And they're praying through that. And there's a section in there where they pray for their church leaders and they do it. And I've done it a thousand times before. Listen to me, this is so important. It is not a small thing for them to alter their liturgy. Do you hear me? sitting in that chapel and they prayed through the prayers of the people and I saw on the screen on the chapel wall and we pray for our dear brothers and sisters in the A&M Church of Christ and I teared up because that moment of unity and love was only made possible by one act of forgiveness and kindness from my friend Russ over 20 years ago and he doesn't even know it happened What can God do through a group of people in this church who say, I know it doesn't make sense. I know it doesn't pay off for me. But I'm all in from the youngest to the oldest. We're in this together. 
And your people are my people. Your God is my God. And wherever we go, we're going there together. I've said this again and again. I was talking to somebody the other day. I know you're waiting for the agenda of the new minister. Here is my agenda. Together. Unity. Not waiting to drop a bomb on you. I'm not waiting for the next thing. This is what I'm all in on. Your people are my people. Your God is my God. Your family is my family. Because I believe if we live like that, the ripple effect will go back generations, healing things we didn't even know were hurt, and will go forward to a people we can't even see yet. Father God, that's our prayer. Would you so infuse us here with the power and the love and the wonder of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit that even when we disagree, we live like that here and with the people around us so that your impact will endure for generations. To the glory of your name we pray. Amen. Now you might have realized we haven't taken communion yet. We haven't forgotten. We're doing a little experiment where once a month we're going we're gonna to lead out of the sermon into communion. I, wasn't my idea, but it's a great idea. Here, here's the thing. I don't believe there is any passage in Scripture that can't take us right to the table. And what a great one to take us to the table today. Right? So get your element, but I want you to think about this. What does it say in Ruth 1 verse 6? It said, the Lord provided bread for his people, and he's still doing it. He still provides bread for his people. By the way, God doesn't need a pause. We won't do this all the time. I'm praying one prayer, okay? He doesn't need a pause in between. I'm praying one prayer for both, <laughs> okay? Um, but here's the thing. God provides the meal. He gave us bread. Please don't rush past this moment and say, oh yeah, we're doing this just because we're supposed to do it every week. Stop. This meal isn't supposed to just make us the right church or whatever. This meal is supposed to change us every time we partake of it. Why? First of all, he's here. Remember to a Jewish person isn't think really hard about. It's not killing him on the cross again. He's raised from the dead, and he's here, and he's hosting the meal. The Lord has provided bread for his people. He gave us his son. And, hear me, every time we take this in this group, we are saying to each other what Ruth said to Naomi. Even when I disagree with you, I'm with you. Even when I don't understand you, I'm with you. This isn't just thinking about Jesus under a tree somewhere. When we take the bread, you can do that. When we take the bread, what is it saying? One body of Christ. And you ingest it and so do I. One body. And when we drink from the fruit of the vine, there is one spiritual blood that runs through all of our veins. It's the blood of Jesus Christ. When you eat this meal, the simple thing I want to remind you of is we walk out of this door and we live like we just ate it. One. Your people, my people, your God, my God, your family is mine. Father God, we thank you that you again and again and again have provided the bread of life for your people. And you've given the blood of your son Jesus to unite your people. Father God, I pray that as we eat this now, we don't just celebrate what you did in the past, that we step into the impact of what you're going to do as you lead us into the future. Thank you for the bread and for the cup. And thank you for Jesus that 
is represented powerfully in this moment. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Please protect.